Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I told my husband, if we have to go to the White House, okay, I will go. But I'm going as myself, and it's too late to change my pattern. And if they don't like it, then they'll just have to throw me out. That was the late Betty Ford, former First Lady of the United States, speaking to 60 Minutes in 1975. Like so many other First Ladies before her, Ford was a strong woman who spoke her mind and fought for what she believed in. And yet many of us know very little about Ford and the other First Ladies who shaped history since this country's founding. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we explore what the portraits of the First Ladies tell us about their lives and their impact on our country. And later, a professor of Latin American politics on how the region is making space for women's representation. But now we speak with Gwendolyn Dubois Shaw. She's class of 1940 bicentennial term associate professor of art history at the University of Pennsylvania. Formerly, she was senior historian and director of history, research, and scholarly programs at the National Portrait Gallery. She helped the gallery open its first comprehensive exhibition of First Lady Portraits in 2020. Gwendolyn, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I want to talk about this exciting exhibit that debuted at the National Portrait Gallery back in 2020, and it came after years of work and dedication to bringing that idea into reality. And that exhibition is called Every Eye is on Me, First Ladies of the United States. Talk to our audience a little bit about that exhibition and the motivation behind its creation. Yeah, thank you. It seems like it was a long time ago, but it wasn't really. Um, Every Eye is Upon Me was an exhibition that we put together at the National Portrait Gallery to celebrate portraits of first ladies. And it was one of the most in-demand topics amongst visitors to the museum. You can imagine about two and a half million people before the pandemic would come through the museum every year and they would see the gallery of presidents and then they would say, where are the first ladies on these comment cards that we would get? And every month, you know, there would be one or two requests for portraits of first ladies, in particular, after the portrait of uh, Michelle Obama was unveiled and people were coming to see the Obama portraits and they wanted to see the rest of the first ladies. And so my colleagues began work on this exhibition. And then when I came to the museum, I inherited responsibility for it. And it was fascinating and, and, you know, sort of dispiriting to learn that the museum did not have a full collection of portraits of first ladies. There are numerous, numerous portraits of presidents in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery, but not every single first lady is represented in the collection. And that points to a lot of different issues. One of them being that women's history and women's representation, even amongst first ladies, is not as complete as it is um, for men. And so a lot of what the exhibition involved for me was tracking down 
portraits of first ladies that were high quality, that had been made during their lifetimes, and that would tell us something interesting and important about their lives and the time that they lived in. It's fascinating to me to listen to you talk about this absence, because it's so much about representation, about gender, about power, but also the ways in which the public perceives first ladies. These women hold such prominent positions. Their role can often shape the role of the president or the the reaction to the president. And yet there is this glaring absence that we see, not just in terms of the representation of first ladies, but really women in these positions across the U.S., Before we talk about some of the key components of this exhibition, I want to talk a little bit about you and about your approach, because you are an art historian. And traditionally, when we think about first ladies, we think about capturing their role. We think of classical American historians without that art history bent in orientation. What do you think is different about your perspective as an art historian And how does it help reveal or pull out things that may have been overlooked with a different person in that position? Well, my interest and the the kind of approach that I take to art history is really about those absences and presences and the ways that different people have been represented over time. My primary area of research is into issues of race, gender, class, and sexuality. And all of these things come into play with first ladies. So when we were looking at these different portraits that were available, um, I traveled, I I visited the White House. The White House was the chief uh, donor to the exhibition. The White House is only permitted to loan uh, portraits of presidents of first ladies to the Smithsonian. So we got about um, 10% um, of the portraits that we borrowed from uh, the White House. I visited the White House Historical Association, the National First Ladies Library, uh, numerous different collections around Washington, the State Department, etc., to try and find these portraits. And because of my interest in um, representation and difference, I wanted to find portraits that were from different points in these women's lives that showed them um, younger, you know, in the in the White House, after they had left the White House, to think about how they wanted to have themselves seen. What were the things that were important to them when they sat for a portrait? What did they wear? How did they do their hair? What sorts of objects did they include in their portrait? Did they have a book with them? Did they have a lot of jewelry on? Did they, you know, were they smiling? Did they look miserable? Um, All of these different things were important to me because they spoke a lot about what the values were at that moment for these women in their lives and what the relationships were that helped support those lives. So one of the things that we included in the exhibition, although it was primarily uh, portraits that were either painted or photographs um, or prints, popular prints that came from books and magazines or were hung on people's walls. I also wanted to include a few things like garments, because that's one of the ways that so many of us learn about first ladies. If we go to the National Museum of American History, there's a first ladies exhibition there that's, you know, that's that's gowns, that's dresses, and then also China. So I wanted to include a few things like that, but I also wanted to include the stories 
behind those objects and why they were important for that first lady, those relationships that made things possible, the seamstresses, the women who dressed these women, um, the women who supported these women, you know, emotionally as their friends, as their colleagues, how those um, relationships were able to interweave into the portraits, into the clothing that um, first ladies wore, the items that they gathered around them. And I think art historians look, you know, look at this material world, um, this visual world that helps to inform the events that take place, the actions that people um, uh, make and, you know, and, and provide a thicker history for those, for those moments and for those individuals. We're talking about so many layers of the representation of first ladies. So you mentioned the China, you mentioned the fashions, the designers to whom they were connected, and how so much of that reflected the time, the context, the expectations. So if the country is struggling in an economic time, you don't want to be too ostentatious. And yet, if you bury your arms in a gallery portrait or just in a regular photograph, that can be a source of critique about how seriously you take your role. And with all of those public perceptions and judgments, we still don't have a clear definition of what it means to be a first lady in the United States or what those expectations are. As you were going through this work and going through all of the material, piecing together this story to give a fuller picture of first ladies and all of their experiences, what would you say are one or two key differences when we think about those early sets of first ladies and the more contemporary first ladies that we may be familiar with today? One of the things that fascinated me was I had a, a really interesting conversation with Michelle Smith, who is the designer of the dress that Mrs. Obama wears in her National Portrait Gallery portrait. And I, I visited Michelle and saw one of the original prototypes um, for the dress. And, and Mrs. Obama was, uh, was generous enough to loan that dress to the exhibition, which I thought was really important, um, you know, for people to see the dress and see the portrait next to each other, because that dress has become so iconic. And there are all these little girls who had Halloween costumes and, you know, party dresses made, uh, you know, very much like that. And Michelle and I talked about um, her own interest in the history of African-American design and quilt making and her interest in the Guise Bend quilts, which uh, were very popular in museums uh, over the last couple of decades as demonstrations of African-American quilt making practices that also have very modern aesthetics involved with them. And Michelle told me that in this particular dress, she had thought about um, those histories and she wanted to think about the, you know, the history of, of Black textiles in the United States. And that was something that Mrs. Obama really picked up on when she saw the dress. And so it, 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 it changes the way that we think about that garment because it has a very intentional design to it and an intentional wearing of it. And this was something that I also saw in the 19th century in the relationship that Mary Todd Lincoln had with her seamstress, Elizabeth Keckley. Keckley had been enslaved as, um, as a young woman. She was born into slavery. She was owned by her father and later by her own half-sister. And so she was able to save enough money by sewing to buy her freedom and later the freedom of her son. And she set up a dress shop in Washington, D.C., 
where she um, designed and sewed dresses for all of the elite politicians' wives on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans. And, um, and when Mary Lincoln came to Washington, she was a woman who had great intelligence and she had been born into a lot of wealth. Abraham Lincoln married her because he was bootstrapping his way up. He had to find a, you know, a match that would enable him to continue moving forward. And Mary Lincoln's family, um, a slave-owning family from Kentucky, had that wealth. She was a very intelligent and ambitious woman, but she was born in a moment when she could not realize those ambitions, where the only vehicle forward for her um, was a man um, in terms of her political interests. But she could not operate in the political sphere. So she put a lot of her energy into her closet, into dressing, into having attention on her because of what she was wearing. And there are numerous photographs of Mary Lincoln in in different dresses. And when she came to Washington, she had Keckley make a whole new wardrobe for her every season. And they became very good friends. I, I borrowed a capelet, this short cape that's in the collection of the National First Ladies Library in Canton, Ohio, that is signed by Keckley on the interior as a gift to Mrs. Lincoln in 1861. It, it, has, it has a little date in there that, um, that Keckley put into it. And it was sort of like this little freebie <laughs> that she gave to her, you know, like, come back to my shop. Here's, you know, here's a free cape. Um, I hope you come back for more for more garments. And the two women became very, very close friends. And, you know, it was not an equal relationship. It's a service relationship. Like, I, I love the women who who do my manicure every two weeks, you know, and I chat with them and it's great. Um, but it's a service relationship. We don't hang out with each other you know, outside of the salon. And that was a very similar kind of aspect in these 19th century relationships that we have between powerful white women like Mary Lincoln and their seamstresses like Elizabeth Keckley. But after Abraham Lincoln uh, is assassinated, Keckley is one of the few people who supports Mary Lincoln in her widowhood. There's no widow's pension for her. Her sons have the rights to their estates because women cannot have uh, you know, legal title um, in that moment to property in the ways that we can today, you know, uh, and, and in large part, we have to thank changes, you know, radical changes in the law um, uh, for this. And so Keckley supports Mary Lincoln and the two of them hatch a plan eventually to sell Mrs. Lincoln's wardrobe um, to show just how, you know, desperately in need of funds she is. And so I was talking about this story with Michelle Smith, and we talked about the power of the needle, right? That um, seamstresses for years have been, you know, and, and designers today, you know, work their way up. And these relationships with powerful women, um, you know, have been really important, but also vice versa, right? So for Mary Lincoln, this relationship was just as key. After the break, more from art historian Gwendolyn Dubois Shaw. We'll hear about three important first ladies who are too often forgotten. And later, what the U.S. can learn from women's political representation in Latin American countries. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 
This week on the program, women and politics and their impact on our history around the globe. Coming up, we'll hear about how Latin America is leading the way toward greater gender representation in politics. But now we return to our conversation with art historian and professor Gwendolyn Dubois Shaw. Shaw was previously curator of the National Portrait Gallery's exhibition, Every Eye is Upon Me, First Ladies of the United States. The exhibit features portraits, fashion, dining wear, and even sculptures. I wanted to hear more about some of those images, so I asked about a portrait of Dolly Madison, wife to our fourth president, James Madison. I asked Shaw to describe the portrait and what it reveals about the former first lady. This portrait of Dolly Madison was made in 1848, towards the end of her life, and it shows her as an older woman, but she's still quite vain, and she's still holding on to um, these markers of youthful beauty. She has this wonderful kind of white turban um, on her head, and peeking out of the corners are these brown curls. Now, that was not her hair. (laughs) This is a wig that um, she has on there. There's somebody else's hair that she's borrowed underneath that cap. And her cheeks are nice and rosy as are her lips. And it it shows you a little bit of that vanity that she took with her um, throughout her life. She'd always been a very beautiful woman and a woman at the center of attention. She had great parties and she was always able to help people um, who are at those parties, politicians to talk across the aisle with a, you know, with a glass of Madeira sherry um, in, in their hand. Um, but there are a few markers um, of her age. Her eyes are just a little bit cloudy, um, you know, probably pointing to some cataracts, um, changes in her eyes that came with, with old age. And that head covering, and particularly there's also this white scarf at her neck. She's a very modest woman, despite the fact that she was vain and flashy, because she had been raised a Quaker. And those Quaker ideals of covering your head and, and you know, being kind of you know, dressing simply um, were things that she carried through her life. But with a little bit of decoration, she has these beautiful cameo earrings um, and a bright red shawl. I think it's interesting because we often think of Men think of of presidents in the past who were vain, who who wanted to convey power and strength and did not want to be seen as weak or aged in any way. And yet we don't think about the soft power that is connected to first ladies, that if they can convey this image of youth and connection, it also helps bolster overall how the presidency is seen. I want to jump forward a few decades to talk about two images of Grace Coolidge, who was the wife of President. President Calvin Coolidge. The first picture or portrait that we'll talk about is the official presidential portrait, and the other is a photo taken during her time in the White House. What do these images convey and tell us about Grace Coolidge? Well, I love these two sets of images because the, the the portrait of her, the painted portrait, it's very beautiful. She's wearing this very elegant gown and she has some flowers um, on her lap. And then in the photograph, you see her standing next to um, a bouquet um, of flowers in a vase that's on a table um, beside her in, in, you know, one of the private rooms in the White House. And here she appears to be arranging flowers. 
This is a photograph that was taken shortly after she became first lady. Warren Harding had died of a heart attack and the Coolidge's were vice president and um, second lady. And very, you know, unexpectedly, uh, they were elevated to president and first lady. And one of the most immediate things that happened in, you know, in Grace Coolidge's day was that she had to be promoted to the media and to the country as first lady material. They didn't know a lot about her um, because she had been, you know, her husband had been second on the ticket. And so a lot of photographs had to be taken to be distributed, showing that she was now the first lady. And this was a little bit of who she was. And this series of photographs was made. And this one where she's arranging flowers, she doesn't look particularly happy <laughs> to be doing this. She has a, an expression like, please take the picture so I can go back to doing the things that were on my list for the day. There are other pictures in this in this series that show her darning socks, which I think is like absolutely bizarre. Like, you know, like do we really want our first lady spending all of her time sewing uh, the president's, the holes in the president's socks shut? Like, I, I just don't think that was, was possible. But this was a way to show her inhabiting a familiar domestic role in the White House and to say that she was, uh, you know, the nation's first housewife. And it belied the fact that Grace Coolidge was a very accomplished educator. She was interested in deaf um, education. She worked at a school for the deaf when she and Calvin Coolidge met. She knew American Sign Language. She was very interested in the deaf community. And she was also interested in her husband's career, but I, I don't think that darning socks and arranging flowers um, were the top of her list. There is this sort of piercing hollowness in her eyes, in her gaze, in this image. And as you mentioned, these are often women who are very accomplished in their own right, but have to play small to fit a particular mold to be palatable. And so it raises the question about what these images, the, the attempts to craft a particular image, what it really says about us as people in the United States and how we perceive and respond to first ladies. The last set of images that I want to talk about, uh, we've heard are some of your favorites. And these are two images of Betty Ford, who is wife of Republican President Gerald Ford. The first image is her official portrait. And the second is a more popular photo of Betty Ford dancing on the top of a table at the end of the Ford presidency. What is it about Betty Ford and about these images that appeal to you? And what do they tell us about her life and her journey as First Lady? Yeah, so this photograph of, of Betty Ford on the cabinet table in the White House in bare feet and this wonderful 1970s pantsuit, <laughs> um, or maybe it's a leisure suit. I'm not sure. I'm, uh, it's it's just it, it, it's such a charming image of her, but it's also kind of a sad image of her because you know this is a moment in her life when she was going through a lot of pain, um, physical pain. Um, she had an addiction to alcohol and to uh, pain pills that she had been prescribed by a doctor for a pinched nerve in her neck that she got as a professional dancer. She was a marvelous dancer um, in her youth. And she married Gerald Ford, who she loved very much and who was who absolutely adored her. And they were really great helpmates to each other. They never ran for president. She never imagined that she would be first lady. Gerald Ford, of course, took over as vice president when Spiro Agnew um, resigned. And up until then, he had been a representative. 
uh, in the House of Representatives. And so she had not anticipated um, being first lady. And when she came into the White House, she came in with all of her honesty intact. And she spoke quite frankly um, to the American public. And there's a great 60 Minutes interview with her um, in those first months um, in the White House, where she talks frankly about her children, you know, possibly having had premarital sex. She was pro, pro-choice. She was pro-ERA. She was one of the biggest advocates for the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, which ultimately does not pass. And she was one of these Republican women who occupied a, uh, you know, a, a position of, of, of moving forward, of moving American values, changing American values in ways that created equality for more Americans. And we see her as somebody in this moment on top of this desk who has survived cancer. She was very open about her diagnosis with breast cancer. She let the cameras into her hospital room when she was recovering from her mastectomy. And she was just like an amazing woman. This was a total surprise for me. I had forgotten how interesting and dynamic Betty Ford was and how after being first lady, she continued to speak openly and without shame about that addiction, you know, that had led her in some ways when she, you know, must have been a little bit high to jump on top of the table and to dance around and to have her picture taken there. Um, And she spoke about addiction as a disease and radically changed the way we talk about addiction in this country today, radically changed the way that we talk about breast cancer and the way that we fight these two diseases in this country, bringing them out into the open because of her advocacy. And I think she's one of these great, uh, you know, incredibly heroic uh, uh, women, um, regardless of party, regardless of politics, who was really dedicated to, uh, to moving the country forward in important ways. I think about where we are in 2022 and the many ways in which people are still encouraged to hold shame, to hold stigma, to not give the fullness of their experiences because it will be used against them. And to see Betty Ford, as you said, to be very open about her struggles, her challenges, but also her triumphs. And this idea that no matter what position you're in, no matter what title you hold, all of us has to have to deal with these challenges and how do you move through them? When you think about the legacies of first ladies, because there are so varied dimensions and ideas of what that should be, but as you look forward, you think about that legacy, you think about a possible future where we may have a woman president and our first first gentleman. How do you envision that role changing given what you've seen throughout history? I'm not sure that the roles will change all that much. I mean, I don't think we're as interested in seeing our um, our first partner arranging flowers, <laughs> maybe, as we were in the 1920s. But there will always need to be uh, representatives of the executive branch, welcoming people, visiting people, attending events, representing the country. And I think that is our... Uh, you know, going into this century, um, you know, now 20% done, um, that those are the roles that we want to see that first partner inhabiting, representing the country in an, you know, in an elegant, respectful, intelligent way. We want to know that they're sensitive to um, cultural differences, that they won't embarrass us or embarrass the people that they're visiting with. 
And I think that's what we hope. And I think that that the, that that role can be inhabited regardless um, of somebody of somebody's gender identity. And so I'm hopeful that um, it will be a role that uh, that first partners want to take on, that they won't shrink from that spotlight. But, you know, there, there was something there, there was some first lady who said, you'll have to pardon my inability to remember exactly which one, that the first lady is only elected by the president. Right. So the president is the one who is making this um, decision, who is going to be that hostess in the White House, that host in the White House. And I think it's important for people to um, to understand that that role has not always been occupied by the spouse of the president. Historically, daughters, nieces, friends of the family, Dolly Madison functioned as first lady for Thomas Jefferson, whose wife had predeceased him. Um, she, you know, had parties for him and, you know, functioned as that White House hostess. Many other women have occupied the role of First Lady Sisters. Rose Cleveland, who was our first known lesbian First Lady, who was the sister of Grover Cleveland, she occupied that role for her brother before he got married when he was a bachelor. And I think that role can be occupied by anyone, as long as that's what our expectation is, which is my hope for the future. That was Gwendolyn Dubois-Shaw, professor of art history at the University of Pennsylvania and former senior historian at the National Portrait Gallery. She was curator of the exhibition, Every Eye is Upon Me, First Ladies of the United States. You can find links to the images we discussed and learn more about the exhibition by visiting our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. When we return, Professor Jennifer Piscopo on Latin American First Ladies and the dominant role women play in their political systems. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Over the last century, many Latin American countries have moved away from authoritarian regimes to flourishing democracies. And although there's a lot of work to be done in the region in order to build trust in those institutions, they are at the forefront of some of the world's most progressive gender equity policies. According to the Interparliamentary Union, three Latin American nations— Mexico, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica rank among the top five for having the highest percentage of female legislators in government. Now, by comparison, the U.S. ranks 68th. Jennifer Piscopo is Associate Professor of Politics and Affiliate Faculty of Latin American and Latino-Latina Studies at Occidental College. Professor, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we're talking more and more across the U.S. about women's engagement and representation in politics and in leadership. And some people may be surprised that Latin America really leads the way in terms of having a longer sustained history of women's representation in politics. What's the motivation behind these laws? And why do you think Latin America is so far ahead of the rest of the world? 
Yeah. Thanks so much. That's a great way to kick it off. And so I think one of the important um, reasons is Latin America's recent experience with democratization. So of course, not every country has the exact same history, but broadly speaking, across the Spanish and Portuguese speaking countries of the region, um, they were part of the third wave of democratization. So exiting from military dictatorships and or civil wars in the 1970s and in the 1980s. Women were key in those processes. So women formed parts of the peace movements in Central America. They formed parts of the human rights movements in South America that shamed uh, dictators for their human rights abuses. And then as democratization happened and the political parties reformed, reconstituted, formed anew, that return to politics as usual meant that men were looking for their jobs back, right? So the men were gonna be part of those new parties and they were gonna run for office in those founding elections. And that was actually really frustrating for the women activists who had played such a key role in the democratic transitions, but then found those contributions not being rewarded with opportunities to serve in the new democratic governments. So the arguments that originated in places like Argentina for gender quotas were part of making an argument about the fairness of democracy, the quality of democracy. And for countries democratizing more recently, this sense that um, democracy was not just about free and fair elections, but it was about the quality of who was included. And so women um, were able to make the case that returning to a high quality democracy was about including women, recognizing their role in politics. And so gender quotas were, were born, for lack of a better word. You know, when we think about the fullness of democracy, that it's not just about access, which is critical, but it's about access and representation. And I want to ask, with those initial quotas that you see in Latin America, these women activists saying, in order to realize democracy, we need to do this. Did many of those same activists then move into politics or run for office? Or was it, we've paved the way, let others now go into those office? Well, I think it has definitely been a multi-generational struggle. And part of that is, you know, it's not all hunky-dory, right? Political parties are not quite so self-interested that they're just going to throw open the doors to women because women said, oh, well, it's fair that you do so. And so often what happened was that the initial quota laws that were passed, you know, there were a lot of concessions that women had to make to get those quotas. They had a lot of what we call loopholes or escape clauses. And so then the party leaders could sort of have all of the public relation benefits of adopting the quota, but needing to pay very few of the costs. They could use those escape clauses to actually not nominate the specified percentage of women. So it's a gender quote of 30%, but once all those loopholes come into play, the parties don't actually run that many women. Or they run that many women, but they could run them in places where the women aren't likely to get elected. So from that first quota law that was passed in Argentina in 1991, and 10 other Latin American countries soon followed, was this multi-generational process of learning. So a few women got their foot in the door thanks to those quotas. And what has happened over the past 30 years is tightening those laws, getting incremental reforms in Argentina and Mexico and all these other countries that start making that quota stronger and stronger. And so today you have countries like Argentina and Mexico that are not just running 50% women, but actually electing 50% women. And that's really due to the way these laws have gotten stronger over time and different generations of women, right, have passed the baton to the younger generation saying, okay, we fixed this part of the law. Now you come along and fix the next part. 
Um, and it really is quite a remarkable story of the power of gradual electoral reform to lead to some very important changes. I want to lean into the point that you just made so that you have these quotas, these set-asides, understandings of people running as candidates. But it sounds like what you're also saying is that over time, it hasn't been easy. These countries have actually increased the number of women who are elected and are then serving. So is that a fair take that over time, this has actually had an impact on women's representation throughout the system? Yes, that's absolutely right. So I can give you sort of two quick examples. You know, a lot of Latin American countries um, don't use a single member district system like we do in the U.S., right? They actually use a multi-member district system. There's multiple candidates running in a district and the parties will present lists of candidates. And then usually when parties win seats, the candidates at the top, you know, the first candidates are the ones that get those seats. So a really important revision to quota laws was to specify that it wasn't just the required percentage of women on the list, but it had to be the required percentage of women in winnable spots on those lists. So you couldn't do what parties did a lot in the very beginning, which was just put women in those bottom list positions that they were never gonna win enough seats to get that far down the list. A second one that'll interest voters in the US is that some countries do use single member district systems. So Mexico is a case where half of the Congress is elected in a single member district. So what did the parties do? Well, they ran the women candidates in the districts they knew they wouldn't win, right? This would be the equivalent of, you know, the Democrats say, building a woman candidate in, you know, the red heart of Texas, right? The Democrats just won't win that seat. So an important innovation in Mexico um, was a rule that was devised that said for each party, they were going to divide that party's districts into safe districts, competitive districts, and losing districts. And the current gender parity rule for candidates actually had to be filled within each tier of districts. So this prevented the parties from running all their women candidates in the districts they weren't going to win. So those are the kinds of reforms that happened over time. And they were designed to say, look, if this is really about inclusion, then it is not just inclusion in candidates. It's about inclusion in the constitution of the Congress. You know, we are both political scientists and any decent political scientist will make the point that the rules of the game matter. And so we know in Latin American countries, there's this ongoing historical challenge around things like allegations of corruption and transparency and the pull that people feel to act in a particular way in office because of what it took for them to get there. What I find interesting about this piece of your work is that you show how corruption, transparency, the connections to gender, and what that means overall. So what would you say from that research that we could take away from women candidates who are in office? Are they actually more trustworthy? Are they actually more in alignment and respectful of the will of the people once they are in office? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And so I think there's two things that happen. There's, as you said, right, there's perceptions and then there's reality and there's the way the rules of the game are, are working. Um, so one thing that we've shown in some of my previous work is that, of course, gender quotas explain a lot about how many women are elected. I just gave you some examples, but they don't tell the whole story. Um, so in some work with Mandi Hinojosa and Kendall Funk, we sort of said, okay, what explains women's election beyond quotas? And so we showed that in countries where voters are particularly unhappy and distrustful of the current office makers, they're particularly unhappy about corruption, 
parties tend to nominate more women and more women are elected. So there's a perception, right, that women might be more moral, more honest, more trustworthy. Political parties are aware of that perception and voters are thinking of that when they go to office. So it is a perception, right? We want to not make essentialist arguments that, you know, women are, are better than men, but it is certainly some way, a way that gender interacts with how party leaders and how voters think about women candidates. If we think about the political science literature more broadly, you know, we don't have strong evidence to think that women, once they're in office, are less corrupt than men, but we do have strong evidence to think that the consequences of being corrupt fall harder on women than men because when women are corrupt, they're violating right assumptions about how women should behave. And I always use an example that does not come from my own research, but comes from my colleagues' research. Um, into a few decade ago, there was this expense scandal in the UK around um, members of parliament abusing their expense accounts. And so my colleagues found that women and men were no more or less likely right, to abuse their expense accounts, but women were much more likely to stand down in the next election. And so women might then resist indulging in corruption, not because they're essentially better, but because they themselves are savvy and they might anticipate the disproportionate effects of being corrupt or being perceived to be corrupt, right? What men get away with, not so easy for women to get away with. What I'm thinking about, though, is you talk about, you know, how women are responded to and what the focus is for women who engage in the same behaviors as their male counterparts, but the response can be much more punitive because they are seen as violating a particular norm. And it begs the question, do you feel like changing these rules, creating these quotas and these systems, do you feel like they also make it more difficult for women who are elected to be successful in a long-term way that perhaps their male counterparts can get away with? In the beginning, and when I say in the beginning, I sort of mean the 1990s and the first part of the 2000s, you know, we were hearing a lot of concern, including from women themselves, right, that being elected under, under a gender quota was delegitimizing to their presence, right? And that, you know, you already have to work harder to prove yourself when you're a member of the underrepresented group, and now you're a member of an underrepresented group that's being perceived as being given a handout or a leg up. But of course, the empirical evidence shows that elected women usually are more qualified than a similarly positioned man. And when I have you know, been around the world in the past decades giving these talks and someone always says, well, don't quotas sacrifice merit, I say, well, how many unqualified men are actually in office, right? So again, as you suggested, this double standard, right, where we're looking for women to both have certain kinds of qualifications and have certain kinds of achievements. And, you know, the mediocre men have just been elected all along, right? I will say that we are finding that these concerns about the delegitimizing or the signifying effects of quotas, even though they themselves are based in prejudices that we need to be critical of, but insofar as we want to investigate them empirically, we are finding that over time they do diminish. So I have a current project right now I'm with co-authors Amanda Clayton and Diana Bryan, and we have survey experiments um, that we've run in seven countries so far, and each country has a different experience with gender quotas. They've had a gender quota in place for a certain amount of time. And we find two really important things. We find that across the board, a more diverse legislative body is preferred to an all-male legislative body, no matter how that diverse legislative body was elected. So even if that diverse legislative body was elected using an affirmative action mechanism like quotas, it's still preferred to the body that's not diverse. So that's the first piece of good news. 
The second piece of good news is that we find that even if there is a legitimacy decrease for that gender inclusive body when it's elected using quotas, it is never decreased so far as to go below the all male body, right? So it's still preferred. And that decrease is the smallest in countries where quotas have been in place for the longest time. So I think, you know, we have these concerns, they're out there in the soup, um, but we know that over time people adjust, right? And it turns out not to be the end of the world. And in fact, it's a good thing for democratic legitimacy if we have diverse legislatures, no matter how we get there. When we think about the United States, I think without question, Hillary Clinton would be considered the most accomplished first lady in terms of making the transition into elected or appointed office. But while that is a rare standout for the U.S., it's not so rare or uncommon in Latin American countries where, you know, some 20 former first ladies have run for office in a 20 year period. Why do you think it's so much more common in Latin America that you see women having these political careers beyond their partner's time in office? What is it about Latin America compared to other parts of the world where this can flourish? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think one um, thing I always want to explain to my students that are grounded in the U.S. is that, you know, in most other countries in the world, you know, parties really matter. And so joining a party isn't just Uh, checking a box when you register to vote, it's almost, it's like joining a labor union, right? It's a formal process and you, Latin America, they say you're a militant in the party, right? Being a party member is very active. And so party organizations um, have a lot of ties in universities and there's a lot of student activist organizations. Student activism is really important in Latin America that can have ties with stronger or weaker political parties. What does that have to do with first ladies? Well, political couples are really common because when do you meet your spouse? Many people meet their spouse at university. Um, How do you meet your spouse? Many people meet their spouses through shared interests. So you might meet your spouse through student and or party activism at the university or in your early years, but because of who is traditionally seen as a leader in a heterosexual couple, right? It's often gonna be the man who has the chance to run for office first. So in Latin America, it's very common that there are political couples and women actually have political experience. So the first ladies that run are not often sort of housewives that came out of nowhere to capitalize on their husband's good names, but they themselves were political actors in their own right. And you do have cases where there are first ladies that were not political actors, but do become so through their husband's experiences in the presidency. And so the current president of Honduras, Xiomara Castro, is a great example of this latter case. So she was not political, but when her husband was president of Honduras and was deposed in a coup led by the US, incidentally, not incidentally, um, she became very radicalized through this experience. She was called upon to lead the resistance to the coup and through this process came to found her own political party and become a politician in her own right. So we have political couples, and then we also have experiences that catapult first ladies into politics. You know, as much as we revere the American democratic system and the American democratic tradition, we are far away from the United States adopting the same types of gender quotas that we've seen across Latin America. But your scholarship suggests there are other things that can happen in the U.S. in the interim in order to promote greater gender representation. So as we come to our close together, what are one or two things that you would say the United States could do in a a shorter, more interim period 
to encourage greater gender representation in our government? Absolutely. And so we, you know, parties in the U.S. don't have as much control over candidate selection. So that makes gender quota implementation trickier. So what can we do? We know from decades of research by myself and dozens of other scholars that there's other barriers that women face running to office. Childcare is one of them, right? The structural responsibility for caring the home. So I always like to say men step up and do the dishes, but even more pragmatically, a recent change that has really mattered was the FEC deciding that campaign contributions could be used for childcare. So these are the kinds of real changes that can make it easier to run for office. You've mentioned Dr. Brandine, the quality of our democracy. I am so troubled by the increasing amounts of political violence, of harassment and targeting that is happening to candidates and elected officials online and in person. And we know women and women of color are targeted more. So there are things we can do in terms of our regulatory capacity over social media, our investigatory capacity in terms of the state, the local, the state and the federal level to crack down on some of the abuses that we are seeing being visited against women and women of color candidates. We know that the possibility of violence, of threats, of harassment discourages those from underrepresented groups from running. And so we can tell them to buck up and that's part of the process, but that's an individual level solution. It's much more effective to change the rules of the game. The rules of the game matter, and so too does our collective commitment to democracy. Jennifer Piscopo is Associate Professor of Politics and Affiliate Faculty of Latin American and Latino Latina Studies at Occidental College. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This episode of Disrupted was produced by Jane Scoble-Wolf, Jay Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang-Barnum, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Jacob Gannon and Taylor Doyle. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>